But we're going to jump into John chapter 12. We're going to wrap up John chapter 12 today. And so we're in a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of John. And it's a pretty interesting text today. So let's read it, and then we will pray. John 12, um, verse 37. Well, actually, this section includes piece of verse 36. So we're right there. The unbelief of the people, it says. John 12. Are you ready? Here we go. When Jesus had said these things, He departed and hid Himself from them. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what He has heard from us, and whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge, and the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. I know that this is the commandment, is eternal life. What I say, therefore I say, as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you. Um, for your presence here today, God. I can already sense your spirit at work, and it's so sweet to be in your house with your people, studying your word. And Lord, I thank you for uh, the kindness and generosity of my brothers and sisters. Um, I thank you for, for choosing me, for allowing me, for giving me the honor of pastoring this church. And um, I thank you that we get to do this journey together, um, building the kingdom of God by your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you for your passage, your text, your word today, um, John 12, and I just pray that your spirit would illuminate the text, teach us, show us, convict us, challenge us, encourage us, God. Help us to uh, be doers of the word and not hearers only, and I pray that you'd guide my words and my speech. Open our eyes to see today, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, um, you know, the title of the sermon today is called uh, the, the, the Final Offer. The Final Offer. Now, now, when you think of final offer, what do you think of? Because when I think of final offer, I think of like a negotiation. Like you're, you're trying to buy something and you're negotiating. Maybe it's for a car. And you're negotiating. And um, there was one time Kimmy and I were, were, uh, looking, for, we were looking for a car and we kind of had a budget and then we went to look for this one car and it was really overpriced and I kind of knew the value of the car and so he wanted this amount and I wanted this to pay this amount 
And uh, we went back and forth and back and forth. And you know how they do when you go to the dealership. They like go to their boss, whatever that is. They, they walk away. They go talk to the boss. They come back. And, this is our final offer. This is the final offer. And then I come back and say, well, this is my final offer. We kind of think of it's kind of the last thing. Now, today what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to give this final offer, but it's not in a negotiation. It's, it's kind of the final offer of belief to uh, the Jewish people. He's, this is the last words that he's going to say in his public ministry. And so he's like, I'm going to give you one more chance to believe. And he gives the offer again. And we're going to see that there's two different types of people in our text today. And um, maybe we fall into one of these categories. This is kind of uh, a theology of unbelief in a sense where we're studying these people who don't believe in Jesus and why they don't believe in Jesus. But there's two groups of people. Maybe you fall in one of them, maybe you don't, but there's a lot we can learn from both. And so uh, the final offer that he gives to these people is um, he gives the offer to believe, but some refuse to believe no matter the evidence. Some refuse to believe no matter the evidence. So look at back to the, you know, verse 36, really. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from, uh, from them, them. So he said these things in the last passage, and then he departed. And I think this is probably uh, communicating more than just a physical departure. It seems like he's beginning to distance himself uh, spiritually from these people. And though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. He had done so many signs. Like they had so much evidence that Jesus is the Christ. And if you uh, remember that uh, in John 20, he gives the purpose statement where he talks about how the reason I've written this book, I've, Jesus did so many things, but I recorded these signs so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in His name. So John recorded seven signs. These seven signs, and we've already went through them all. He, uh, the water, when Jesus turned water to wine in chapter 2. In chapter 4, He healed the nobleman's son. In chapter 5, He healed the lame, the man who'd been lame for 38 years. In chapter 6, He fed 5,000 men plus women and children. Uh, and then later in that chapter, he then miraculously walks on water. And in chapter 9, he heals the man who had been born blind. And in chapter 11, we just read recently, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Now that was like the pinnacle of his miracles, raising someone who had been dead for four days. And so he gave them sign after sign after sign that he is the Messiah. And I know some of us were just like, some people who don't believe are like, I would believe if God would just give me a sign. If God would just show himself to me. If God would just give me a sign probably not they had seven signs those are the only ones that he recorded he did other things and john calls them signs not miracles because he doesn't want you to be pointed to the actual act he's he doesn't a miracle would draw you to the actual miracle and that's the, he doesn't want you to end there he doesn't want you to say oh man that guy was healed Ooh, wow and he wants you to see that that's a sign a sign points you to something of more significance. Whenever you're looking for the church, you know, you're new to the church, you come, you drive by, and you see the Bayou Talis sign, 
You don't say, I've arrived, I've made it to the sign. No, you're like, the sign is pointing you to something more significant. And so he points them to something more significant. These signs are pointing that Jesus is Messiah. They had God in the flesh walking among them, and they still did not believe. Their unbelief was not a result of lack of information. It wasn't a result of lack of proof. It was something else. It was like a lack of trust. And I would say that we have plenty of evidence too. So we don't have Jesus in the flesh like they did. We have the the events recorded, but I think we have plenty of evidence too. Romans 1, 20 kind of describes how, what about people who don't, um, who haven't heard the gospel? Are they going to go to heaven like automatically because they haven't heard the gospel? And, and, And Paul writes and says, not really because they have evidence that there's a God of the universe. In Romans 1.20, he says, For his invisible attributes, speaking of God, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. They are without excuse. So, um, he says, if you look at nature, whenever you see the sunset, whenever you see the beautiful mountains, whenever you see the ocean, whenever you see just nature, trees and how things are beautiful, and you think, there's no way this just happened. There has to be a designer. There has to be a creator. There has to be a God. There has to be intelligence behind all that we see. He says, creation itself is evidence testifying that there is a God, so you're without excuse. Now, you might say, yes, 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 but that's how they used to explain nature. Like before the advancement of science, they used to explain nature that that there's a God behind everything, but Now we have science and it's advanced to give us answers for how the world works. You know, you you believe in God, I believe in science. Maybe that's it. But here's the thing about that, is that science does a really good job at describing nature. It does. But it fails to explain metaphysical realities. It fails to explain why things exist. Like, don't confuse description with explanation. See, um, they're not the same thing. Science can describe, but it can't explain. And Doug Wilson, who's a pastor and author and um, theologian, he uh, gives this example for this. He says, suppose you walk into a room and uh, there's a notice posted on the board, and it's prohibiting certain things, and it's requiring certain things, and you're standing there with a scientist is with you, and, uh, and you say, I say, hey, who put up that sign? And he says, well, it's printed on paper with black ink, and, and then I say, yeah, but who's telling us what to do? Who's giving us these orders? And he says, you have to understand that the, the poster, it's a, it's a foot wide and it's a foot and a half tall. And I'm like, yes, but, but, but who's telling us what to do? Where did this come from? Why are we be, being given these commands? And he, 
<laughs> he just keeps on describing the things that need to be explained. He, uh, I'm asking for an explanation. You can increase knowledge about the poster indefinitely. And that doesn't explain anything. And so science does describe nature. It doesn't explain it, though. Tim Keller said it this way. I'm going to ask if my mic could just be turned down a scotch. Whenever my mic's too hot, I feel throttled. I feel like I have to be quiet, and I don't like being quiet. All right, thank you, thank you, thank you. I want you to still be able to hear, I guess, but Tim Keller said this. Why do mountains and oceans, the sun and stars, move us as deeply as great art? The answer is because they are great art. Nature speaks to all without audible words. It is nonverbal communication that there is a God, that the world is not an accident, uh, an accidental collocation of molecules, but the meaningful work of an artist's hands. Like why, why does nature move us like art? Because it is art. There's an artist, there's a designer. And so they have all this evidence, but they still don't believe. And most of our unwillingness to trust God has nothing to do with our intellect. It has to do with our will. It has to do with we, we, don't, we don't want anyone telling us what to do. We don't want a God who we're accountable to. I don't really understand people who act like you have to leave your mind at the door to believe in Jesus or to believe in the Bible. As I've said before, the Bible has satisfied the greatest minds in human history. That thinking people have studied these things deeply and found them to be true. It's a matter of the will. That I don't believe because I don't want to believe. And that's what's going on here. That maybe there is some evidence for God. Maybe there's something to the guy who lived 2,000 years ago who owned nothing, who lived 33 years and then who was murdered, yet 2,000 years later we're still gathering to worship him. Along with 380,000 other churches in the United States and billions of other believers around the world. Maybe there's just something to this. And so they have, they refuse to believe no matter the evidence. And so they would not believe until they could not believe. Look at verse 38. So they, um, let's just go back to 37. Though they had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word uh, spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who is believed what he has heard from us? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. At least they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and spoke of him. So he's, he's appealing to the Scripture as um, the prophecy that Isaiah gave that this would happen. That the arm of the Lord would be revealed and they would not receive it. The arm of the Lord um, would be revealed. 
If someone the idea is that if someone believes, it's because it's been revealed to him. The arm of the Lord is the, the power um, the power of God, this arm of the Lord. They're like, <laughs> the arm of the Lord, the power of God in, in Jesus, in the incarnate Christ, in, in Him, was revealed to these people. And they, they did not believe it. It was revealed in a unique way. God in the flesh, His signs, His teachings, yes, they refused to believe it. So God hardened their heart. It says they would not believe so that Verse 39, they could not believe, for he blinded their eyes. The idea here, like I'm not bringing things into this, this is just what's here, is that God is sovereign over salvation. We see later in chapter 15, verse 16 of John, where, it said, where Jesus tells his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you, that God is the active agent in salvation. So what, you know, these are the things that we have to kind of wrestle with, is the idea that the Bible teaches that God is the primary agent in salvation, that he chooses us. But then the Bible also says that, that humans are responsible for their actions, so God plans and purposes for us to believe, but then we're also responsible when we don't believe. It's, it's, it's both of those things. We see here in verse 37 clearly that they um, did not believe in Him despite the miracles. And so what do we do with that? These two things. We just say, it's both. It's both. You know, the Bible never uh, pits these two things against each other. The Bible never says it's one or the other. The Bible says there's, it's both. God is sovereign and we are responsible. Now, this is not illogical, although it sounds like it could be. It's not illogical. It transcends logic. It's what is mystery. There are things about God, about reality, that are mysterious Hard for us to understand. It's good to wrestle with and study and, uh, and search for answers, but there's some things we got to say that it's just, it's just like above my ability to understand. But just think about it. God planned this. Prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus ever came. It was prophesied that when he came, they would reject him. Um, and if they didn't reject him, just imagine they didn't. Imagine this didn't happen. They all received him. Yay, Jesus, and no one rejected him. Then he would have never been able to be rejected and actually crucified and die on the cross for our sins. If a people did not reject him, if his people did not reject him, he would have never been able to actually go to the cross and die for our sins. So God's actually working these things to make the payment for sin possible. Now, you might say, if God chooses us, if God works primarily, if He's the primary agent in salvation, then why should I even share my faith? If He's going to save people, He'll save people. If He's not going to save them, He's not going to save them. Maybe I'll just leave it alone and let Him do His whole sovereign thing. Well, I would say that I kind of have the same type of question. Like, if God doesn't have the power to save people, why pray for people's salvation? If God is, is, if His hands are tied by, the, by people's choices, then why do we even pray for people to be saved? I, I think it's, it's a both thing that God chooses and uh, we are responsible to choose as well. 
Um, God is sovereign over salvation, and we are responsible for how we respond to them, to him, and they refused him. And their rejection, maybe this will help us reconcile, that their rejection caused a hardness of heart. So it says, they refused him, and then he hardened their heart. Now, this very similar thing happened uh, back in Egypt. Whenever the uh, Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, and um, God came to free them. So he sent Moses to Pharaoh. And, and, and they kept playing this back and forth. With They would send a plague, and Pharaoh would say, you can go, and then the plague would end, and he'd say, no, you can't. And he'd just go back and forth and through these nine plagues. And, and the interesting thing, if you ever read closely the story, is that throughout the story it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. That Pharaoh is hardening, his, he's rejecting, he's refusing, he's hardening his own heart towards God. But then it begins to say, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And, and then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That there was this, this thing that happened where whenever you uh, harden your heart towards the things of God long enough, He begins to give you over to that hardness. And then He begins to harden your heart. That they would not believe until they could not believe. This is what one a commentator says about it, he does not mean that the blinding takes place without the will or against the will of these people. So with the hardening of the heart, these men choose evil. It was their own deliberate choice, their own fault. So they chose to harden their heart, and then God says, I'm just going to strengthen you in your decision. I'm just going to give you over to it. Whether it's for you, for me or against me, he will give us the strength to go that way. Here's a sentence that has helped me reconcile these things, in my mind at least. Um, God accomplishes His sovereign plans through the free choices of people. That God's going to accomplish His plans, whether or not we like it. He, he's, not, he's not dependent on us to do what He wants to do but he uses our free choices to accomplish those plans. And whenever we refuse him and keep refusing him and keep refusing him, there comes a point where he's just going to give us over to that and then he begins to harden our own hearts. Your refusal to believe when you can becomes your inability to do it at all. Um, and so in Isaiah 6.10 is what he's quoting here uh, where he says, therefore he could not believe Verse 40, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, at least they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and he would heal them. It's Isaiah 6.10. They rejected Jesus, so God hardened their heart. He blinded them. But you might be like, not my God. How could, how could God blind people? That's not the God I know. How could God blind these people? Well, the Bible actually describes that we're all born blind. That it's not like we're seeing people and then he just blinds people. Like we're all born blind and then some choose to remain in their blindness. We get an idea in John 3, verse 18. So John 3, 16 is the, is the most famous passage in the, New, in the New Testament. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Well, John 3.18, just a couple verses later, says this, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son. And so um, the idea here is that everyone on the planet is condemned already. Everyone is blind already. And it's only those who believe in Jesus that receive sight, that receive forgiveness, that receive eternal life. And everybody else is just remaining in their blindness, in their unbelief. So the, the scary part of this is that um, there can become a part, a, a time, where you callous your heart, you harden your heart uh, towards the things of God, towards the conviction of God, and then there, there could come a time where he just gives you over to that. So um, if you're feeling something drawing you to God, if you're feeling the work of God, like consider that a gift. Consider that a gift. Conviction is a gift. Conviction is a gift. I, I thought someone was sharing with me this week about something God was convicting them and, and, and they were needing to repent about. And I, I said, you know, that's a gift. The fact that you feel remorse for things you do, that's a gift of God. Because there's people who don't feel that. That whenever God convicts you and you just ignore it, whenever God convicts, don't do that. And you're just like, yeah, I know I'm not supposed to do that, but I'm going to do it anyways. And, and you just ignore it and you begin to callous your heart towards the things of God. And there comes a point where you can't feel Him moving anymore. That's why whenever people are like, well, I'm not convicted about it. Well, that's not an objective standard for whether it's right or wrong. Because some people don't get convicted about things that are obvious sin. Because they've calloused their heart. They've hardened their heart towards the things of God. And so he's like, if God is moving on your heart, that's why the Bible over and over says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. If you hear Him speak, Listen to that. Do something with it. Obey it. If God's calling you today, answer the call. Answer, answer the phone while it's ringing. Pick it up. It's, it's interesting because he says, um, he references Isaiah 6, 1, where he says, um, oh, I'm in the wrong, I'm still in John chapter 3. He references Isaiah 6, 1, where he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. In Isaiah 6, 1, really the few first six verses of Isaiah, he talks about how Isaiah saw the Lord on his throne. He saw the glory of God. Um, the train of his robe filled the temple, the uh, angels around him. All, it, it describes all of that. And here, John gives us the detail that he was seeing Jesus. He says he saw the glory of the Lord. Isaiah did. That's who he was seeing. That's who he was speaking of. And he saw him as glorious. And he's like, I want you to see him as glorious too. I don't want you to have a, I want you to believe while you can. If God's moving, I want you to see him as glorious while you can. So the first group of people is they refuse to believe no matter the evidence. And the world is filled with these people. Maybe, maybe you're struggling with that right now. And somehow in your mind you think there's no evidence for God. But the truth is that 
There's plenty of evidence for God. And our refusal to believe is, is, is an act of the will, not an act of the intellect. Secondly, um, uh, some believe but keep it secret. Some believe but keep it secret. Um, let's keep reading. So, verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Um, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So, so it says many of the authorities, so you have this, the probably members of the Sanhedrin, remember the Sanhedrin is, a, is the religious a ruling group who uh, is made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. And uh, so some of those leaders, many of them it says, believed in Jesus. They believed that he was the Messiah, but they did not want to confess it, which, which makes you ask the question, where did they really believe? Like, is this, uh, the debate is, is this an issue of spiritual immaturity? Are they just immature and they believe they're saved, but they're just immature in the Lord, and so they haven't gotten to the place where they're willing to express that faith? The other side of the argument is, are they just not really saved? They have some type of intellectual understanding and uh, they attribute that Jesus probably is who he said he is, but it's not a life-transforming belief that saves because they've kept it secret. Which is it? Which is it? Um, well, I would say the Bible sheds light. Other places in the Bible kind of shed light on this. Galatians 1.10, Paul writes and says, for, I am, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now notice here, it doesn't just say that they won't, they won't confess it. It gives us the reason for why they won't confess it. Verse 43, For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Paul says, if I was to elevate the the, the um, the will of man, the pleasing of man over pleasing God, I wouldn't even be a servant of Christ. Matthew 10, 33, Jesus says, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. So it seems like, I mean, are, are people who are being denied before the Father in heaven saved? Probably not. Barclay says this, secret discipleship is a contradiction in terms for either the secrecy kills the discipleship or the discipleship kills the secrecy. Like the, the whole secret discipleship, like God has no undercover Christians. It's antithetical to what it means to follow Jesus. The, the first step of obedience after believing in Jesus biblically is baptism. And baptism is a public confession that Jesus is Lord. It's identifying yourself with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It's saying He is my Lord. And so to keep your faith a secret is really not to have a faith at all. It says um, that they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That seems to be the heart behind a lot of our 
timidness to let people know that we follow Jesus is fear of what they will think. What will they think? You know, it's like that old DC Talk song. Will people think when they hear that I'm a Jesus freak? You ever heard that song before? And then what will people do when they find that it's true? The fear can cause us to be timid. Um, See, Jesus explained that anyone who would serve him would be honored by the Father. You see that in in chapter 12, uh, verse 26. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So he says, if anyone serves, then, then he will be honored by the Father. Yet there are many who love the honor that comes from men more than the honor that comes from God. Um, last week, we talked about glory. You know, they love the glory that come from man rather than glory that come from God. And we talked about how at the base of the word glory is this idea of weightiness. It's what are you giving weight to? Are we making light the things that are weighty? Are we making weighty the things that are light? And whenever we uh, put too much weight in the glory and the approval of people, then um, it it causes our, our fear of God, our approval of God, the honor of God to be light. And he's like, that can't be in the life of a believer. The weight needs to be in the approval of God that needs to trump everything. I thought about it this way. Just treat treat God how you want to be treated by God. Right? Do you want God to be ashamed of you on that last day? When you're like, hey, remember me? Can I come in? You know, let me in. And he's like, no, I'm ashamed. Like, do you want God to be ashamed of you on the last day? Well, then don't be ashamed of him. Do you want God to be ashamed of you, to to look away from you whenever you need Him to work on your behalf? Well, then don't be ashamed of Him. How would it go if you were ashamed of your spouse in public? It's kind of that, you know, typical middle school couple until they get to the guy's group of friends and he like, let's go over hand. You know, it's like, and then the girl's like, "Well, well, this is over. Right? Because if you're going to be ashamed of me in front of your friends, then um, I'm not going to be with you when we're not around your friends. And it's, it, the idea is that love isn't secret, that love expresses itself publicly. Love for Jesus does the same. Let us be unashamed in our following of Jesus. Let us not shrink back. Let us not you know, hide our light under a bushel, as the Bible says. Let's, let's go out, put it on a hill, be unashamed in our following of Jesus. Maybe you're fe- afraid of being rejected, but Jesus knows what it means to be rejected. Isaiah 53 says that he was despised and rejected by men. John 1 says, it, it says that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. He, he knows what it means to be despised, to be rejected. Uh, to be pushed out. And so he's not asking us to risk anything that he wasn't willing to risk himself. And so, 
Some believe, but keep it secret, which means that they probably didn't truly believe. They could have, they could have, it could have just been immaturity. It seems like probably not. And if you're there, that's where you are. You're like, I believe Jesus, but I haven't told anybody, I haven't told my family, I haven't told my friends, I haven't told anybody at work. I'm like afraid of what's going to happen if I do. Um, come out with it now. All right, so here's the good news. Here's the final offer. Last point is that the offer still stands. The offer still stands. Now, these, like I said earlier, these are Jesus' last words in his public ministry. And then he'll only be teaching the twelve privately until he goes to the cross. So this is his last kind of a proclamation, his last invitation, his last appeal, the last offer before he goes private into the cross. And last words are important. The last words that a person speaks are important. And he uses this time to make an appeal to both groups of people. He sees the people who have plenty of evidence but refuse to believe. And he sees the people who say they believe but they're keeping it a secret. And he sees them both and he makes this offer one more time. It says, verse 44, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me. He cried out. Now, Jesus doesn't do this often. Jesus wasn't a screaming type of preacher. It only a couple of times in his whole ministry does it say that he cried out. And so this emphasizes the importance. He's like, listen up. This is the last offer, the final offer. And the glorious thing here is that there is still a final offer. Like he sees Despite their stubborn, hard, rebellious, dark hearts, Jesus still offers eternal life to all who believe. That's incredible. He sees the people who refuse to believe and He sees the people who are ashamed of Him. And He still offers salvation. He still offers belief. He's like, believe while there's a chance. This is amazing grace. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. He offers salvation to us even whenever we're right in the middle of all our junk. So he says, here's the offer. Believe in me. Whoever believes in me believes not in me. The translation's a little odd here. It's translated differently. Um, He's not saying you don't believe in me. He says you don't believe in me alone but in Him who sent me. And He's linking Himself with the Father. He wants them to know that you can't believe in God the Father without believing Jesus. You can't believe in Jesus without believing God the Father that we're one. And, um, and so, you know, Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, that He is God in the flesh. Uh, he is the image of the invisible God. So He invites, He offers belief in Him, because if you believe in Him, you've believed in the Father. If you believe in the Father, they're, they're a package deal. They're one. He is the image of the invisible God, which leads to the second offer, the offer to see. And whoever sees me, sees Him who sent me. So if you've seen God, you've seen me. If you've seen me, you've seen God. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And the only way you can see is really if the lights are turned on can't see anything in the darkness. And so he calls us out of the darkness into the light. Those who choose to, I almost almost titled the sermon this, um, Left in the Dark. Because those who choose to not believe 
Those who refuse Jesus are choosing to be left in the dark. He says those who do not believe um, remain in darkness. Remain in darkness. It's the idea. It's the idea. So I, don't want, I don't want you to get the idea that God's like, there's a bunch of people who are like, we want you, we want you. And he's like, no, you're blinded. Like, that's not the picture. The picture is of a person um, who, imagine a person sitting in a dark room filled with priceless art. And um, somebody comes in and he's like, hey, let me turn the power on to this room. Like, there's, I don't know if you've seen, like, there's beautiful art all around. Let me turn the light on. And the guy in the room says, no thanks. I like the dark. He's like, dude, you're missing so much. If we just like turn the lights on, you'll see the beauty of this room like you've never seen it before. You don't know what you're missing out on. And the guy's just like, yeah, I, I get that. I don't believe you. I, I just want, just leave me alone. It's, it's a choosing to remain in darkness. It's a refusal to have the light turned on. And um, Christians are people of the light. We come in, we push back darkness, we turn on light. That's why I'm not totally, I don't totally understand um, Christians who are like afraid uh, to do activities on Halloween um, saying that it's the devil's day that um, it's a dark day, that we shouldn't mess with it. Um, Right around now, there's a lot of activity on social media by Christians posting all types of verses out of context, telling you that if you do anything on Halloween, you're, you're worshiping the devil. But I don't get that because I'm sure glad God didn't see the darkness of the world and say, I ain't going there. It's too dark there. I can't go there. That darkness might get on me. I, I'm not doing that. Like, I sure am glad that Jesus saw the darkness and the mess of the world and said, I'm bringing light. I'm stepping into it. I'm not shying away from it. As people of the light, we don't surrender a day to the devil. What are you talking about? We shine light into the darkness. Every day is the Lord's day. We don't surrender. We don't push back. We don't let the darkness keep us hidden in our homes. When the world is celebrating darkness, we'll be shining the light of Christ. That's what we're going to be doing tonight. We intentionally put the Fall Fest on Halloween. Because we believe Christians should be active pushing back darkness. If this is the darkest day of the year, we should be out there shining the light of Christ. And that's what we will do. I'll see you at Fall Fest. He is a a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Live in the light. Don't hide it. The word of God illuminates that that verse is actually talking about your word. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Uh, um, Nestor was up here talking about how he's seen me grow up into the pastor that I am. And that verse, I, my first memory of, of that verse is in the Lord's army. Him and Donna teaching a bunch of elementary school students. Um, scripture memory was a big piece of that. And that was one of it. Thy word, we learned the King James Version. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet 
and a light unto my path. And um, if you want to have light in your life, get into the Word of God and it'll guide you in the right direction. Live in the light, don't hide it. And then the offer, so the offer to see, I mean the offer to believe, the offer to see, and then the offer to listen. Look at verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but of the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment that I say and what to speak. I know that the commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So, so he's like linking this message that I'm giving you, the gospel, the word, my commandment, my words. They're from the Father. They're my message and then the message of the Father. It's almost like he's like, you can't, you can't put me against the Father. You know, have you ever, it's not like putting mom against dad, right? And you're like, go to mom, and you're like, mom, can I? And she's like, no, and you're like, fine, I'll go to dad. Dad, can I, you know? And so it's like, it's not, you can't go to the father and put him against the son. He's like, we're united in this, that this is the message of salvation, that this is the gospel. And if you would listen, he says, anyone who keeps my words, hears my words and keeps them, Right? Like you, following Jesus means keeping His Word. And we will be judged on the last day based on what we did with the words of Jesus. That's where everything's going to rise and fall. What did we do with the words of Jesus? And ultimately, His primary command where He says, this is my command, this is my words, the primary command is to believe. Obedience to this command means to believe the gospel. That's what he's calling people to do. To believe the gospel, to believe the command, to obey it, and to receive eternal life. He says, I did not come to judge. I came to save. The judgment will happen, and it's going to happen based on how you respond to my words, but that's not my primary purpose in this coming. I came to save. You know, he didn't even have to incarnate to to judge the world if that's what he wanted to do. He could have stayed in heaven and just rained down judgment and fire. And he didn't have to come down here to judge the world. But he did have to put on flesh. He did have to die on the cross. He did have to rise from the grave if he was going to save the world. And he's like, I'm going through all of this to save you. And the offer still stands. Believe it. Believe it. And as much as we've messed up and rebelled and rejected Jesus, he still offers the gift of salvation to all who believe. And if you receive it, you get justified. You get right with God. And if you reject it, you get judged in the end. The same message that brings life to those who believe it will result in condemnation for those who reject it. You will be judged by what you do with the words of Jesus, the gospel. Um, will you believe him today? Believe him today. Where do you stand in this? Maybe you have plenty of evidence. You don't think there's evidence, but there's plenty of evidence. And you're refusing to believe. My call is if today you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. If, if God's working and drawing and moving in your heart, that's a gift of God. Respond to it today. 
And if you have believed, and maybe you've believed for a long time, but you've been kind of a secret Christian, come out into the light. He says, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father. And I don't want that for you. Let's not live ashamed of the gospel, but let's shine the light of Jesus Christ into this dark world. The offer still stands. If you're here today, there's still hope. Believe in him while you can. Will you believe in him today? Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I thank you for our time in your word. And Lord, this is a a sobering warning, an example of what it looks like um, to refuse to believe in you or to hide our belief in you. And I just pray that you would move in our hearts, that you, Holy Spirit, you draw and move and tug and work in our life, that you would soften hard hearts, that you take the heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh, that you'd give sight, spiritual sight to our blindness, God, that you'd raise us up from the grave, that we believe in you, that um, those who have never believed in you before, that today would be the day, that they repent, they turn from their sin, they turn to you, Jesus, and believe that Jesus is the Son of God, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for my sin, in my place, rose from the grave on the third day, conquering sin and death, proving you were God. I pray that we'd believe in that and embrace that with our whole lives, that we'd live unashamed. I pray for the believers in the place that we would grow in our boldness of our witness of you. That we would feel an urgency to tell people about you before time runs out. And God, I pray for our time together tonight that uh, the gospel uh, would be shown and would be received and that we would shine the light of Christ on our community um, in what is historically a dark night on the calendar. And so I pray that the light of Christ would shine, that people would see the beauty of the gospel and be saved, be transformed, come to the light. Pray you bless these people in Jesus' name. Amen.